Kayakurakatira tina koto katoa, ko Rachel King aho. He mihi tene no titira o kupu no ototahi. He mihi hoki kita manafenua o tiroene kia nai tua huriri. No reira tena koto, tena koto, tena huihui tato katoa. Uh, welcome everybody to Word Christchurch's Shifting Points of View season. Um, we have five fantastic sessions for you today with some overwhelmingly esteemed speakers, uh, some of whom are in the audience today. Uh, we have the Owning History panel right now, and then we have Marilyn Waring at 3pm, Vincent O'Malley on the New Zealand Wars at 5pm, and an evening with Simon Winchester in conversation with Kim Hill at 6.30pm. And if you're feeling adventurous, you can head on over to Space Academy at 8pm for the Bad Diaries Salon. Um, I'd like to thank our major funders, Creative New Zealand, the Rata Foundation, Christchurch City Council, and our partners, Te Runanga o Naitahu, Heartland Bank, and the New Zealand Listener. And also, as ever, a huge thanks to our patrons, supporters, and our volunteers. Uh, and a special welcome to our Shifting Points of View season pass holders as well. Um, please turn your phones to silent, and uh, in the event of an emergency, please remain calm and follow the instructions of the venue staff. Uh, and now Peter Field from University of Canterbury will introduce our panel today. And just a quick note that unfortunately Sasha McMeeking was unable to participate today, so Jessica McLean has stepped into um, her place. So uh, enough from me, thank you very much, and we hope you enjoy the conversation. Well, good afternoon, everyone, and welcome, um, and especially welcome to Simon Winchester from the rest of us who are Kiwis and live in New Zealand, although by my accent, you can probably tell I'm adopted by the native land here. Um, it is my great pleasure to introduce the panel, which I'll do in a moment. I can also let you know that um, the panelists have written a number of books, and those books are available at uh, NRS Books and as well out in the lobby. And if you do buy one, you may get one signed if you're fortunate enough by our esteemed authors. So keep that in mind. Uh, thank you, Rachel, for the various introductions. Um, yes, I'm Peter Field, and uh, the title of this session is Owning History. And I think I'm the only historian here who's owned. Uh, that is, I'm at the University of Canterbury right now as a practicing historian. So the university owns me as an historian. The rest don't. Um, let me introduce the panelists, if I may. Um, and I'll begin with uh, Jess McLean here. And Jess tells me that um, she's an emerging academic based at Atahi, which is the School of Maori and Indigenous Studies at the University of Canterbury, my colleague. I've done some brilliant, innovative work. His words. <laughs> in the Maori future space and I teach into Maori and Indigenous Studies programs, and my whakapapa is to uh, Nadikahu, ready? Nadihina, Clan O'Hara, and Clan McLean. So welcome, Jess. Thank you, Peter. Uh, Dr. Vincent O'Malley, a Pākehā New Zealander of Irish and Scottish Highland descent, uh, the ninth of nine children, as is my wife, by the way, I will say that. Uh, he is the first in family to go to university, at least I believe so. And I'd like to suggest a few more educational firsts for Vincent. Uh, first class honors uh, with BA in history from the University of Canterbury. Delighted for that. And in 2004, became the first PhD graduate in New Zealand studies, something we might talk about briefly today from Victoria University of Wellington. Um, founder of the Wellington-based research consultancy, History Works. Um, and let me emphasize works here because Vincent has nearly two decades experience as a professional historian, uh, working on behalf of, of Iwi and Hapu and various treaty claims agencies, um, including the Waitangi Tribunal, and Crown Forestry Rental Trust. Uh, he is vitally connected, I think, past and present for many of us in this room. He has published widely on Crown and Maori affairs. His books include, as you probably know, Agents of Autonomy, uh, The Beating Heart with David Armstrong, 
and of course, The Great War for New Zealand, his 2016 book, uh, which is to be owned, read, reread, studied, cherished, I would say. And last, not least, surely, uh, Simon Winchester. Um, I will try to be brief. Uh, Simon Winchester, OBE. I'm an American, but I think I know what that means. Other buggers' efforts. <laughs> <laughs> it's not what I thought. As a British writer, journalist, broadcaster, and probably well-known by each and every one of you, though you might not have known that he was born in 1944 in North London. Um, he does suggest that we tell about his high school education. The single dubious distinction that I noted is a dual distinction of being appointed head of house and then soon thereafter expelled <laughs> for conducting illicit science experiments. <laughs> There we are, Oxford University is in your present and in your past, graduated in 1963, or, or went to Oxford in 1963, uh, read geology at St. Catherine's College. Uh, they've invited you back, I believe, as a fellow. Um, and then a journalist in the 1960s. Uh, in 1972, I will note of interest that he was posted to Washington, D.C., and so we'll all know that in, by 1974, um, the re-elected president of the United States, Richard Nixon, was impeached. Uh, by the House of Representatives and then resigned and you were there as a journalist at the time, which would be a, an extraordinary uh, event to have witnessed. In 1980, Winchester was briefly appointed American Bureau Chief, actually, for the Daily Mail, too. Um, his first book, In Holy Terror, uh, was an account of his reporting years in Ireland. And then in 1982, uh, through essentially 1997, um, Simon was on his new assignment in China, in Hong Kong, where he also, by the way, uh, witnessed uh, the handover of the British colony to China uh, in 1997. Um, Fortune as an author, he says, began with the publication in 1998 of The Professor and the Madman. We won't ask whether you envisioned Mel Gibson. <laughs> um, in, in the lead role. Anyway, a, a book about the making of the OED, a, a book which has sold uh, uh, more copies than the three books I've published, uh, <laughs> by two million <laughs> copies. <laughs> the judgment of humanity is wise here. Um, made a, an officer of, of, the British, uh, of the Order of the British Empire for services to journalism and literature. Uh, he now lives in New York and in upstate uh, or upper Connecticut or New England. So welcome, Simon. To Thank you very much. Thank you. Right. My apologies if that took a little bit of time out from our discussion, but I could see no alternative. Um, so I thought I would begin with um, asking the question of, of my colleagues here um, around the notion of owning history. It seems strange to think about owning something like history. Um, can history be owned? And if not, what might we say about possessing history? Um, who would like to start? Um, we've not made this call. Um, well, I think um, when we talk about owning history, to me, it's about being honest with ourselves, mm. particularly about the things that we prefer to ignore, the shameful bits of our past, the bits that we, we try and bury and forget. And to me, the point of remembering those is to say that we're mature enough as a nation to take ownership of our history, to accept it, warts and all. Um, and, you know, this... This phrase has been used in many different concepts, but to me it speaks to it, and that is Alan Kurnow's line, not I, some child born in a marvellous year will learn the trick of standing upright here. So it is about reconciling ourselves with the history of this land and being mature enough to accept that history as a way of understanding the present, but also as the basis for genuine reconciliation. Because I don't think that we can reconcile as a nation without being honest with ourselves about who we are, where we come from, where we stand today. And you can't have that dialogue without understanding of that history. You need to have at least a basic understanding of where you come from. I mean, I was talking earlier about a, a sort of analogy was Christchurch post-2011 with all of the landmarks removed and walking around town and feeling discombobulated, not knowing where I was, and then realising this was Colombo Street and there used to be these things here. 
And that's kind of what a nation is without its history. When you lose that, those, those things that anchor you in, in, in where you are as a nation. Um, so that's why, it's, to me, it's really important that we, you know, we can call it, you know, it doesn't need to be about taking ownership, but it is about being honest with ourselves about who we are as a people. And, you know, 2014, um, John Key said New Zealand was settled peacefully. I, I don't think that's part of the sort of process of being honest about our history and accepting ownership because there is a much darker side to our history as well and we need to accept that as well and talk about that and engage with that history. I, I couldn't agree with you more, really. It's uh, in the United States where I've chosen to live now for the last 20 years, um, hardly surprisingly with a, a nation built on immigration but with a foundation of slavery, of course, from the from the get-go, there are so many things that have gone wrong in the manufacture of the United States, which the United States refuses to, to look at, particularly in the education system. And the subject that I've, it's actually I'm really talking about what my wife, who is Japanese-American, has been fascinated by, was the, and horrified by, was the imprisonment of 120,000 um, American citizens of Japanese origin during the Second World War and put into ten concentration camps dotted around the country. And we went to all of them, which is very unusual. Most people don't even know they exist. And we took photographs of my wife as a ceramicist and she made 120 tea bowls, each one representing a thousand of the internees of the of people who were arrested. And it astonishes me to this day how no American, I'm going to ask you, Peter, if you, how much you know about it, um, they're certainly not taught about it in the schools. And it goes back to your point of, to, to appreciate the bad aspects of your history is hugely important in coming out, as it were, as a, as a nation. And in the case of the Japanese-American story, Asian-American story generally, widespread ignorance, total lack of education, and consequently no ownership of this particular type of history, which needs to be, in my view, completely changed. I mean, I have to agree with um, my panelists from a... <clears throat> so there's a reason why a Crown apology forms the first part of a treaty settlement, because without owning the past, um, we can't begin to heal. And if we want to have a bicultural foundation for the nation, it's based on relationships and relationality. And so we know in our own interpersonal lives, if we muck up, then owning what we've done is the first step to healing and moving forward. And so I would say that Māori history is New Zealand history and that Māori futures um, are New Zealand's future. And so it's imperative that we engage with our past and own it in the sense of owning up to it. Well, of course, it's interesting as an American, two American panelists here, um, and yes, one could say quite a lot about, say, the history of American slavery from 1619 um, and Roosevelt's unfortunate decision um, to inter American citizens, um, that can't one ask and think that here talking about New Zealand history, it seems that New Zealand's history is in fact a counter to that. The story, the narrative I've often understood is so much positivity around race relations and the development and fairness and the story of New Zealand in contrast to so many other places. Um, do you get pushback, Vincent, in saying, aren't you telling the story and emphasizing the negative? Well, I think one of the roles of historians is to critically analyse and deconstruct myths, foundational myths for nations. And one of those that we had was this idea that New Zealand had the best race relations in the world. And we patted ourselves, and here I use the collective we for Pākehā, we patted ourselves on, on the back and, and said, weren't we great? Weren't we wonderful to our natives? They should be so grateful for being colonised by us. Um, <laughs> And that narrative was not one that Māori shared. There, there, there was a much darker history there 
that was unacknowledged. And there was this other myth-making around that history as well, particularly around the New Zealand Wars, which framed these as chivalrous and noble conflicts where Māori and Pākehā fought valiantly and bra bravely against one another, and then they settled down to live happily ever after. Māori didn't share that narrative. They didn't live happily ever after. They lived with the consequences of that history every day through Raupatu, through uh, generations who uh, condemned to lives of poverty because their entire economy had been destroyed. People don't understand, in the 1850s, Māori were the leading drivers of the New Zealand economy. New Zealand's export income was overwhelmingly derived from Māori who were exporting produce to California, to Australia, to elsewhere. In the 1860s, as a result of war and confiscation, invasion, all of that is taken away almost literally overnight. Mm. And people don't recover from that easily. So there's this myth-making on the Pākehā side about uh, you know, this mutual respect forged in battle. And on the other hand, Māori you know, do not accept that kind of understanding at all. And their history is one that's kind of not widely understood. And um, one of the things I talk about in some of my work is how some of the ways that Māori remember that history is in the names that they give their children, like Raupatu and Muru and so on, as a way of, of carrying this history, remembering that history, because, because Pākehā are meanwhile sort of um, engaged in, the, in this, this whole process of myth-making around that history and imagined history, where it's all wonderful and it's great. And this kind of idea, I mean, the, the one thing we love to do is say, well, look at Australia, it was so much worse there, wasn't it? And again, it's kind of that complacent, you know, patting ourselves on the back, weren't we great kind of thing. And to me, like, that kind of comparative thing is just an excuse to avoid owning up and exposing our actual history. We need to talk about that. I mean, it's the, 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 the thing about kind of some sort of ranking of, of colonisation where we come out on top kind of thing. I, I don't think that works at all. So, I mean, it is about, um, to me, as I say, for historians, you need to kind of critically analyse those myths. Maybe we'll just skip Jess. Do you want to add to that? Where yeah. do you think we are, if, if you were telling guests, uh, where do you think New Zealand is in its coming to understand um, its past and its repressed past? I would say that I've observed a real tendency to project back in time um, current inequalities and power relations. So as um, Vincent mentioned, in the early stages of colonisation, Māori were really quick to capitalise on the benefits that trade and literacy and new technology offered. Um, few people seem to know that when the treaty was signed, Māori outnumbered settlers by 40 to 1. So that's somewhat equivalent to all of you um, being Māori and the four of us kind of being the settlers. And so there's a really... You spoke of imagining history, and I think when we engage in the past just in our own thoughts, that really is what we're doing. We're imagining it. And, um, you know, just my own experiences. So at high school, uh, the only history option was Tudor England. Um, which I have to say um, made me hate history up until quite recently because to me it was something that was completely irrelevant. Um, it wasn't until I went to university that I learnt anything of um, Parihaka, the New Zealand Wars, anything like that. So I do think that there's a lot of goodwill, um, but we're not there yet. Well, Simon, can I, was, can I just ask a question of? of my two colleagues here, uh, has New Zealand ever considered changing its name back to what it should be? Well, part of the problem is that prior to the arrival of settlers, there was no national identity. Um, there was no pan-Māori identity. Uh, it was more a confederation of independent um, tribes and sub-tribes. And so, um, having said that, um, I'm not aware that there's been any serious conversations to that effect. I think there's a, um, a current petition before Parliament um, asking for the name to be Aotearoa New Zealand, so keeping the kind of dual naming. And I think you know, there's some appeal on that idea. And, um, you know, that's probably... I don't think that's going to happen anytime soon, but I think, 
you know, one day those, those things will happen and we will be prepared to have that conversation. Because Australia is, after all, a relatively neutral word, isn't it? It's simply a country in the austral part of the planet. But New Zealand is a very colonial name. Whereas to have a Polynesian name and recognise that this is originally a Polynesian nation seems to me from the outside to make sense. I'm not sure the um, First Nations people of Australia would agree that Australia is not. <laughs> uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> That'll be the next panel discussion. <laughs> but Simon, here you are in New Zealand and I know you're working. Um, what are you working on and does it relate a little bit to why you're here visiting uh, oh, absolutely. Um, I, I'm trying to do a book on the, um, the history of the ownership of land around the world. And um, because there are so many books on land reform and land issues, and it seems to me they're very dull, many of them anyway. The classic, I think, is called Owning the Earth by Andrew Linklater, who was a friend and it's monumental, it's thick, it's sort of unreadable, at least unenjoyable. So I'm trying to, to weave my way through this thicket of information about land in the world and to come up with something that I hope might be more digestible. So I've, I'm illustrating it in, well, where I've been to so far, obviously in America, um, Oklahoma, because that's where one of the great land rushes took place in the 1880s. And there's a lot about surveying, and so I was up on the Minnesota, Manitoba, Ontario border, and I went to Holland and um, Latvia and the Ukraine and uh, Scotland, now Australia and New Zealand, and then going to Seattle. Each one of these illustrating a different aspect. And in a funny sort of way, the most interesting is Holland, because I, I went, spent a lot of time in a place called Flavoland, which I'd never heard of before, and it sort of sounds like made up, like sort of Disneyland or something. But the interesting thing about Flavoland is it didn't exist until 1958, and so it was raised out of the sea, and consequently didn't belong to anyone notionally. And so there was no argumentation about it, no fighting, no stealing it from anybody else. So how does new land never owned by anyone become owned? And so what the Dutch government did in the 1950s, once they had finished all the pumping and dried it out, and they put advertisements in the papers saying, um, okay, well, this land is now up for grabs, so we're going to distribute it to applicants um, who can take it for a 10-year lease, and then if they manage it properly and make it into productive land and do sensible things with it, then they can have a chance to own it. So please come and apply, but be aware that applications will be based on 30% Catholic, 30% Protestant, 30% Dutch Reformed. So there was a religious basis to the um, origins of the ownership. And it seems thus um, the religious basis reflected the demographics of the Holland in the 1950s. And it seems to have worked extraordinarily well. So um, that is one of the things that I'm interested in. And what, what might we tell Simon about some of the issues around land here that might intrigue him? <laughs> well, <laughs> and might be different. Where to start, right? Where to begin, yeah. Um, so, I mean, I've... <clears throat> I think you're by slightly out of date because I, I, I've been involved in the claims process now for, I think, about 26 years. So, obviously, I wrote that more than six years ago, coming up to two decades. But... Um, you know, the, basically, before 1840, before the signing of the treaty, Europeans claimed to have purchased more land than existed in New Zealand. <laughs> New Zealand was 66 million acres, roughly, and the old land claims that were lodged after 1840 were for 70 million acres. So I don't know where the extra 4 million came from. <laughs> but So this is the start of this whole process of land alienation. Then after 1840, the Crown asserts an exclusive right to purchase lands. Um, and massive land purchases follow in the South Island. Obviously here, the Kent purchase, nearly a third of the country, uh, purchased for, um, I can't remember exactly, but a few thousand pounds, so $4,000, I think, in, in today's money. Uh, the incredible thing about that was Henry Tacey Kemp, 
who was responsible for this purchase, it's nearly a third of New Zealand, he didn't set foot on the land once. It, 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 um, it, it defies belief that he, he never actually set foot on any of the land that he purchased in this huge 20 million acre um, area. And of course, you know, the, um, the reserves were a few thousand acres out of that 20 million as well, so a tiny, tiny fraction of that area. Um, in the 1850s, you get resistance to, to land alienation and so on. You get the key tone. I'm almost delivering my, my five o'clock lecture now, but anyway. <laughs> <laughs> you get resistance to that. The New Zealand wars followed. There's land confiscations in the 1860s. One of the things about the wars, the really important thing, is that it allows the government to really impose its authority over Māori communities. And you see the consequences of that almost immediately because in 1865, you get the native land court set up and that's been described as Sihu Kafaru as an engine of destruction for Māori society. Because it, what, it, what it does is says that land is no longer owned communally by the tribe, by the iwi, but each individual of that tribe has a piece of paper so they can sell, say there are 500 owners, each one of those can sell their land without reference to the other. So what, it, what that does is attacks the communal leadership of those communities that undermines that. It's incredibly successful as well. So a lot of the land of the North Island is lost through that and also through confiscations after the wars and so on. So by the 1970s, out of that 66 million acres, I think you're down to less than 5 million acres of land owned by Māori. You have the, um, the famous land march in 1975, led by Dame Fina Cooper. Um, and in the same year, you get the Waitangi Tribunal established. Initially, it's only um, it's restricted to investigating contemporary issues, so grievances that arise after 1975. It's only 10 years later, in 1985, that it's empowered to retrospectively investigate historical grievances dating back to 1840. And that's really when the floodgates open in terms of historical claims and the massive research that's been done around that. So there's a huge volume of research, and part of the thing one of the things that drives me is that this is an incredible seam of history that often doesn't see the light of day because most of it is unpublished. Claimants are aware of it, treaty lawyers are aware of it, members of the Waitangi Tribunal and so on, but other New Zealanders don't really know that history because we don't learn about it at school either. And that's another thing as well. Well, that was sort of the point that yeah. I think you were raising at the beginning. And and I don't want to take over your moderating job here, even though I'm sitting in the middle, but... Feel free, I mean, just are, do a good job Are people it, taught this at school? I mean, this seems to be crucially important, and yet the lady who was driving me around said that at schools in New Zealand you learn about the Russian Revolution, you learn about American history, mm. but what this fascinating topic that you've been talking about is very little taught in New Zealand schools. Is that, is that a fact? I mean, what did you... That, that is a fact. Really? Well, this is outrageous. Um, currently, yes. I beg your pardon. <laughs> so the government, uh, Chris Hipkins, our education minister, has recently um, essentially refused to implement curriculum change, preferring instead to leave it up to schools to develop their own responses to this, which is pretty patently not good enough um, given that it's been up to schools for some time to, to do this. Um, but I just wanted to come back to, some, to, to what you were saying earlier and point out that the very notion of ownership is culturally bound and that um, partly a misunderstanding around what constitutes ownership um, has played into where we find ourselves. So Māori didn't own land in an exclusive, fee-simple kind of way. You know, there were a, a series of overlapping rights and interests that have been described as usufruct, the right to, um, to use the land and to, to benefit from it. And so oftentimes when land was sold, it was a right to use the land rather than a transfer of absolute title. And so, I mean, these questions about what even is ownership are relatively recent and certainly weren't in anyone's mind at, back then. It is lovely to hear the word usufruct <laughs> being used in conversation. The other one is allodial, which is ownership with absolutely no one else 
owning it. You, I mean, in other words, not the crown, not anyone. Very, very few tracts of land are allodially owned, but usufruct. Mm. Really I, ugly word. I have, I have a slightly <laughs> different read on, on some of the resistance to looking at New Zealand history. Um, my feeling is that it's a little bit of a, of a, of a nice trait, an interesting trait of, of these people who have a bit of cultural cringe. And it's just sort of natural and easy to say, somewhere else it's more important. And so it's not necessarily one of culture as much as maybe a certain psychological makeup. And I think it's a sort of more pleasant explanation for it a little bit too. I think there is something in that. I remember um, during the 90s, my first ever CD was um, by a New Zealand group, Supergroove. Now, at the time, there was massive cultural cringe in New Zealand around our music artists um, and New Zealand On Air, our broadcasting agency, did a lot of work, New Zealand Music Month, you know, and now you, we're all about New Zealand music, but it's taken decades to sort of be proud of who we are and what we produce. Um, was always, ooh, shame, let's listen to Top of the Pops from America and that kind of thing. So yes, I would agree that there is a lot of cultural cringe happening there too. It partly comes down to this, this idea that New Zealand history is boring. We, we don't have a, an interesting history. Interesting, hap, interesting history happened elsewhere. And actually once you're exposed to New Zealand history, that couldn't be further from the truth. We have an incredible history, a very rich history, a unique history. And it's full of really remarkable figures as well. I mean, anybody who's heard of um, Wudamu Tamihana, who was, to my mind, one of the most remarkable statesmen in his own history ever. It, it, just an incredible leader, a man of peace, uh, a visionary who had an idea of a bicultural country that didn't really come to fruition for at least a century after he died. But we can learn a lot from people, from studying people like Wudamu Tamihana, like, in a sense, it's that kind of Māori concept of looking back to the future, really, isn't it? It's, I mean, we, there's so much that we can, we can gain from understanding that history and learning about people like him and, and many others, Fina Cooper as well, obviously. I was very struck when, um, echoing your point about cultural cringe, when this very nice chap interviewed me for The Listener the other day. He said, in this book you're writing, he was almost pleading, it was, well, I hope he's not in the audience because it's very embarrassing, but he said, are we going to get a chapter in the book? And I, I said, I don't know, I haven't written it yet, but it was sort of, please give us a, give us a chapter. Remind <laughs> us. But uh, from exactly what you're saying, I think New Zealand history is absolutely fascinating. But the only problem from my point of view is that in the great sort of context of Polynesian history generally, Māori history is extremely short. What is it, 1,200 years or so? How long is uh, Māori's settlement in New Zealand? Depends how we define history. Well, <laughs> we define it temporarily. How long have Māori's been here? Um, 1,200 years? A millennium, certainly. Yeah. Yes, that sort of figure. So nothing like the 60,000 years in Australia of Aboriginal peoples there. So it's, that is something of a problem. Well, let me try another word out, uh, being irenic, right? And uh, in an attempt to be irenic, I often think that really good relationships, we know those, a few of them, right? Um, are often relationships of opposites or marriages of opposites. It allows you to be yourself and, and still not be crazy. Um, that there's something wonderful, isn't there, in some of the difference that Māoridom and, and the Pākehā English bring and brought, and so what is currently here is a unique marriage of maybe two very different things. I'm thinking of, of Simon's recent book, uh, Exactly, <laughs> um, thinking of that book, and I wonder if the same type of people who will not look at land and usufruct, but divide it up and survey it and own it, are also the type of people who like to get things very precise, and that there's just an interesting kind of tie, maybe, that goes with a type of people who, or is there, I guess is the question I would ask Simon, um, a relationship between folks who are very scientific, like to get things precise, and also um, imperial. 
But it was interesting in, in this, this latest book, the, my original title for it was the word exactly, which is the way it's titled in Britain um, and the Commonwealth, not, not Canada there. Um, but the Americans, at least my, the marketing people of my publisher in New York said, exactly, no. The marketing people will find it very difficult to sell a book, the title of which is a concept. <laughs> it's a completely insane remark to make. But, he's the, but the publisher, who's an Englishman, very nice, Jonathan Burnham, said, um, can't you come up with some, um, a human being in the title? I mean, make it a being about people. So I changed it. I mean, this was at a meeting, a, a live meeting with lots of marketing and salespeople. And I said, well, how about the perfectionists? They said, that's exactly right. So it was published. They made the decision on the spot. It's going to be called The Perfectionists, How Precision Engineering Changed the World or something. Within about 10 minutes, emails internally started flooding into the office saying, but we hate perfectionists. Perfectionists are pedantic, fuss budgets, and we despise them and run away from them. So mercifully, that we sort of address this in the book about the contrast between perfectionists and craftsmanship, people who worship the imprecise, who prefer bamboo to titanium and so forth. But um, it's, it's somewhat irrelevant to your question, I think. But <laughs> tangentially germane, anyway. But uh, I agree, I do not like perfectionists or the title in America. I note, Jess, that you mentioned your, your Papa, and you have, what, four lines, and they're interestingly related, even in mentioning clan and iwi. Um, do you think of yourself as one thing or as several things, as an amalgam, a mix, a melting pot? I mean, I consider myself to be a pretty typical New Zealander, someone who is of um, mixed heritages, um, someone who has really deep roots on both sides of my family, um, and it's important to me to, to honour um, both halves of my whakapapa, because that's who, I mean, New Zealand is bicultural, I'm bicultural, I think that um, there is only, I know there's only going to be more and more people like me, Stats New Zealand predict that in 20 years time, one in three children in this country will be Māori, one in four will have um, mixed ethnicity, and um, the population of Pākehā New Zealand Europeans will have dropped from about 75% um, to about 65%. And so, um, is it arrogant to say that maybe on the future? No, I, hope so. <laughs> I hope so. I hope so. But the interesting thing, I mean, you're, one of your clans is Irish, presumably, and of course you, O'Malley. And this raises, once again, I'm so sorry if I'm taking over your role, and I don't mean to, but with the whole debate about the backstop and everything and Brexit, the unravelling of the situation in Ireland yet again, remembering the remark which, in a way, central to what you're talking about, owning history, blessed is a country that has no history. Well, Ireland has history in spades, and it's all going to come back to the surface. You remember that wonderful remark by, was it Churchill, about the Great Flood, when the waters of the Great Flood finally disappear again, all will be left will be the drear steeples of Fermanagh and Tyrone because the integrity of their argument is eternal. And that's going to be what Ireland is all over again, I fear. So can you put on your Irish hat and forget your New Zealand hat for the moment and tell us what you think is going to happen if the backstop doesn't occur and we have a hard border between... Well, those who forget history are condemned to repeat it. Sadly, yes, and, exactly. Uh, you know, potentially it's catastrophic, isn't it? Really is. And you know, 25 years of of progress and peace in Ireland um, put at jeopardy. It, it, it's, it's madness. It's going to be very sad indeed. Do you do you feel strong 
ties to your Irish antecedents? Um, I do. So my grandmother is Josephine O'Hara. Oh, that's good. And um, through her, I know that Clan O'Hara earliest records place us around the year 1000. Um, so there's quite a long history there. I find it kind of amusing that amongst my Māori, Scottish and Irish um, whakapapa, we could perhaps describe an antipathy towards the English. Um, <laughs> <laughs> all, you, all you need is a little American. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and I do think that there are real cultural similarities between um, Irish, Scottish and Māori. Um, this is evident in social structures and um, many art forms and things like that. Um, in terms of Brexit, I suppose I have the privilege of not feeling connected to that. And so I can observe it um, with an admixture of amusement and despair. <laughs> well, one, one of the other really interesting elements of, of history is in what language one speaks. And of course, New Zealand seems to have not only a, a bicultural uh, commitment, but as I understand it, the recovery of, of Te Reo Māori in New Zealand is one of the greatest successes that there has been in the second half of the 20th century, when so many cultures or their language, through their languages have been lost. Um, it's, it's been revitalized. Did you grow up speaking it, Jess? Did you come back to it? No, so my... Would you say you're fluent? Absolutely not, although I'm learning. Um, Again, my family history somewhat encapsulates New Zealand's history. So my grandmother, um, her parents were some of the earliest Māori to make the move to the cities um, at the beginning of the 1930s. And so her parents were of the generation that strongly felt that the best way for Māori to get ahead was to be like, was to assimilate. And so they were sent to the best um, private Pākehā schools in Auckland that they could afford. Um, and of course, in those environments, speaking to Reo was still physically punished. So my mother and her sisters grew up completely um, disenfranchised from, from their own language. And it's been my generation that sort of Partly it's wider things, so there was no kōhanga reo, no language nests, no kūrakaupapa when my mother's generation were growing up. That's something that's come afterwards. Um, and a lot, a lot of work has been done, but we're not there yet. I mean, one of the bases of um, protecting the language is um, Article 2 of the treaty guarantees um, full and undisturbed possession of various tongue, including language. Mm. So it's on this basis that the government supports te reo, but as you may be aware, there's been a lot of discourse lately around whether it should be compulsory in schools, and there's been a real massive backlash to that, which is sad because language is an intrinsic part of culture and culturally specific ideas are expressed in those languages, and so um, yes, revitalization is great, um, but there's still more to be done. Well, I'm aware that I would like to... How are we doing for time, Simon? How am I for time? <laughs> I was, thank <laughs> you for understanding I, I was, that, that I joke. Was talking, just before I left here, I, in the hotel, I was reading a fascinating story on the BBC about, how, um, about language in Canada, uh, another Commonwealth country that a French-speaking couple from, of course, Quebec, successfully sued Air Canada, who was forced to pay them $20,000, I think, because the word lift on the seatbelt um, clasp was in smaller letters than its French equivalent. And they maintained that the legitimacy, the equal legitimacy of French and English in Canada was being disregarded by Air Canada. 
And the judge upheld their complaint and <laughs> wagged a finger. At well, I'm aware of the time, and uh, I know there's so many questions that I would like to ask, so I imagine the audience would. Um, but be before we do, I, I thought, Vincent, maybe you would say a, a last few words about um, where you'd like to see um, history um, and New Zealand history um, in the next few years um, or five years. Um, what do you envision positively? Um, well, for the country? if we take ownership of our history, I think there are three things that we need to do. The first thing is protect the sites that connect us to that history. Because if we lose those sites, we lose part of our history. And, and we've seen that right here. So look after those sites. A lot of the battle sites in New Zealand wars, the way that you find them is they have a road through the middle of them. And often that road is named after the British general who invaded that district. And imagine if you're a Māori kid growing up in that community, living on a street named after the British general who killed your ancestors. How are you supposed to feel about that? So look after the sites. That, that's, that's just the, you know, all the remnants of those sites, because that's, that's just so important. Secondly, teach the history. Teach the bloody history. It's as simple as that. We need to understand who we are as a people, as a nation. We can't do that if our kids go through school not learning it. And they're actually crying out to learn this history. It's just adults who are holding them back. The Ministry of Education is saying, sorry, not allowed. The system doesn't allow for that. I would say you should design, you should decide what it is your education system should deliver and then design a system around that, not the other way around. Saying the system won't allow for it. That's just a cop-out. We need to learn the history. Thirdly, we also need to make resources available for adults because so many of us, me included, didn't learn any of this history at school ourselves. So whether that's websites or documentaries or apps or whatever, so that we can engage with that history, understand that history, embrace it and own it. It's, it's as simple as that. There's the three-point plan. Well, we've been speaking for almost an hour now, Simon, and we haven't mentioned rugby once. So that's something. Oh, apparently, it's, yeah. uh, there's a six-part series, isn't there, on rugby? And it's uh, on tonight. I actually like, to, like rugby. I like to talk about it. It's one of the few times where I get to talk about the United States as a second-rate power. <laughs> all, all, fine. But the weird thing is, I'm sorry to say this, but it's on tonight at 8.30, and I'm in it. I mean, I know, well, I did know something about rugby because I was captain of my school team, but I years and years ago, but this New Zealand crew came up very nicely to where I live in Massachusetts and filmed me. And they said, my God, you're in New Zealand. We'll turn on your television tonight at 8.30 and you'll see your ugly mug on television. So <laughs> I will. I'll set my watch. So how should we handle this? Um, Rachel, do you have a microphone? So should we ask folks to wait till you get to them? Yes. So we have time for a few questions. Um, where shall we start? Do we have any students in the audience? I always like to think if, if we can start with some young people or folks who think of themselves as quite young. <laughs> no? Any high school students here? I know some university students here. I'm just try. No? All right, well, let's just open it up to the general audience. How about this young woman here at the uh, at four rows up? Start there. Kia ora. I wonder if you can um, tell me whether history uh, has a conversation with political science, because we don't have a cosy relationship. We have one where power is extremely held in different hands, and until we deal with the isms, until we deal with racism and gender, genderism, uh, you can't just ask people to be nice and look at history. Do you know what I mean? I mean, people have to be have to understand what is wrong with them, what, where we are undeveloped emotionally and psychologically and in so many ways. So I wonder if someone would answer that, please. Thank you. Um, <laughs> constructing, disseminating knowledge is inherently political, yes. And um, I suppose from a Māori perspective, co-ownership of the history is important, but I also am mindful of, um, so Audre Lorde and Sister Outsider speaks of the educative burden of the oppressed, 
in which blacks are expected to educate um, white people as to the humanity and, and so on. And so while we need to co-own our history, um, I'm wary of, of an educative burden falling on Māori alone. I think that we need to educate our damn selves. <laughs> How about this gentleman here in the second row? Here. <laughs> Thank you. Um, I'm wondering to what extent are Māori owning their pre-European history? You see what I mean? Could you say a little more? Yeah, um, most of you, the comments have been focusing on uh, the history of New Zealand from the time of the European settlements mm -hmm. and their relationships with the Maori. But the Maori history began much, before, much earlier than that. And I'm wondering to what extent the Maori are owning their history pre-European, before the Europeans came along and changed the society? Um, to a very great extent. Um, one of the reasons why there is not sort of a more public um, sort of statement of Māori histories in that sense is that they're incredibly um, regionally bound. So each iwi tribe or hapu sub-tribe will have its own oral traditions. Um, in terms of... Because, I mean, I suppose the idea of history itself is somewhat culturally constrained, and we look to our past in a range of ways to make sense of where we are now. And so our oral traditions, um, our creation traditions, speak not only of the world as it was, um, or as how it came to be, but are living in the sense that they always offer something to say um, about the present. And so I suppose they are somewhat, can be allegorical in that sense. But this is something that often happens, not necessarily behind closed doors, but it's happening on marae, it's happening in Māori communities. And so this isn't something that's sort of necessarily shown off but just because we don't see it um, in the public eye doesn't mean that it's not happening. But if I can sort of amplify the question, because I'm fascinated in, in putting New Zealand people into the general Polynesian context. And when I was doing a book on the Pacific, I spent a lot of time in Hawaii and became friendly with the people that built Hokulea, the great uh, canoe that presumably came here, we must have done several times, I imagine, and then was, you know, went completely around the world. How much do New Zealand Māori identify with Pan-Pacific Polynesia? First, I would say that there is not a single um, Māori thought on that, but um, when we know that that Māori are a people that developed here in this country, and they were Polynesians when they arrived. We share a really rich um, tradition of mythology and, and um, technology and all that sort of thing. So very much, um, to use a New Zealand idiom, cuzzy bros. <laughs> New word for me. <laughs> I would like to add to this gentleman's question. Um, <clears throat> I was rather hoping that Sasha McMeeking would be here because she is definitely Naitahu. Right? You are from Auckland, is that right? Um, I fuck up up to Moody Finua, way at the top of the North Island. Kia ora. Kia ora. Um, <clears throat> I, for my part, fuck up back through my roots in the lower South Island and around this Fiordland coast and the Stewart Island to a group of people called the Waitaha. We were here first. We were the guardians of the Ponamu. The South Island, the lower South Island, was resource rich and people poor. It was managed by my ancestors like a regional council with objectives, policies and rules. And that system remained in force and was respected by your ancestors from the north who came down frequently and brought us gifts of Kumra, goods, and obsidian, the volcanic glass. 
and they traded that for protein resources. Then there were successive waves of what my mother used to call the brown holocaust, Nati Mamui, and then Kaitahu Naitahu. I want to know when Naitahu are going to own up to the holocaust that they committed and the slaughter that they committed on my ancestors who were peace people. My mother said there were no taiaha in Waitaha. We did not understand warfare. The place was so sparsely populated, if there was a problem, they just moved on and drifted away. So I'm sorry that Sasha's not here. She will be at, our, at her cousin's tangi in Dunedin. But I just put that question out. I, I think if I, if I might quickly um, just re-emphasize, I hope, why this panel was chosen and why we have these questions. Um, there are living questions, and they're questions that have many different layers, and I'm certain it would take quite some time to address other topics, but clearly the themes are related to the ones, certainly, that we've taken up today. And I hope that's meaningful in some way, in the way we've addressed the themes about owning history and the importance of history, and bringing history, even difficult parts, to life. And I think we have a great deal to thank for um, what Jess is in the midst of doing as an emerging scholar and our two senior scholars surely have brought to um, how important history is to us and how um, contentious it is and not shying away um, in their own work from understanding and trying to look at things from multiple sides and um, without fear um, and take some fortitude, doesn't it, uh, to approach things that aren't always yours and have a close look at them. Uh, do we have time for a, a question? Sorry, another question? What's the time? What is the time? Yes, we do. We have time for one more question, maybe over here, um, to have some sort of region, regional balance. <laughs> here we are. Thank you for the, to the panel. Um, I'm a visiting historian from Australia, and we had something over there called the History Wars. The um, great historian, Greg Denning, would say that history is the past and the present. So I want to take up this notion that um, Jess has raised. That it's a big question. It's about the contested notion of history and the contested notion of ownership. Um, and to me, history is inherently political. Uh, there was a question about the relationship between political science and history. Well, the questions about who owns history are big questions about representation and discourse and whose history is represented in the public forum so that's, that's a kind of a comment, and I know it would take a lot more time than you have to fully address it, um, but I just wondered if there could be some brief comments from the panellists on who owns history and the politics of representation. Thank you. Well, I'm interested, if, if you wanted to, just say, um, give a, a moment's reflection on where you've had maybe some of the greatest pushback from your works, um, and being that it's a political topic. Uh, Hobson's pledge, and if if I didn't get it, I would be worried, frankly. So I'm, I'll I'll take that. I'll own that. Well, I was I spent three years in Ireland, and I think working for the Guardian, it was fairly clear that I intellectually, anyway, was somewhat sympathetic to the nationalist cause in Ireland, and the greatest pushback I had was being bundled into a car one day in, must have been 1971 or something, and blindfolded and taken up the Shankill Road and um, tied to a chair and tried by a kangaroo, I suppose I shouldn't say a kangaroo cord to you, <laughs> but you know what I mean, um, and found guilty of making sort of anti-Protestant, anti-loyalist uh, comments in my pieces and um, sentenced to death, and um, a revolver, they put it to my uh, forehead and fired it, and of course there was nothing in it. It scared me and then kicked me out into the, into the street. And I might say that all members of the kangaroo court uh, were killed within the next six months. They all died in various, you know, bomb explosions and shootings and things. So, um, pushback, yeah. yeah. Takes many forms. <laughs> 
Tough um, that. Do you have I, a pushback story? I can't beat that. No, <laughs> I'm just going to sit this one out. Right. So I think that's where we'll leave it. Um, thank you, audience, for coming. And I'm sure Rachel will have a, anything else to, to conclude to let everyone know. There... Just, just a, again, that the author's books are for sale out in the, in the foyer if you would like to um, line up and get them signed. And if you've got any extra questions, because I'm sorry we, we did run out of time, I'm sure they'll be happy to answer them for you. Thank you. And thank, thank you for coming.